Hi, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by a lady, Charlene Lee. There's a piece that she said to me off uh, recording, which was that at one point her um, her son had described that his biggest trait and biggest strengths was kindness. Um, she felt she could uh, she could finish then her work was done with her husband and um, there is a piece to me about a centered leader that you're going to hear today somebody who has this ability as she describes in this about being in the liminal space which is the the difference between the known and the unknown um and she specializes in transformation disruption she's writing books around wisdom so you'll hear a bit about that but also you'll hear a bit about her latest work around ChatGPT and AI. Uh, but there's a fascinating story about her history, about where she's come from, involved with the press, the media, disruption, newspapers. And that story just gives you a flavor of some of the thinking she's got and some great tips about thinking uh, in there, including MVD, um, which is all about data. So I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Enjoy. This is Charlene Lee. Charlene, lovely to have you on the Leadership Tales podcast. I'd love to you. Tell us a bit about yourself. Tell the listeners who you are, where you are, and what you do. I live in San Francisco, California, right in the middle of the city. And I have been a longtime analyst, researcher, and author. I've written six books, and every single book has the word transform in the title. And started writing books in 2008 about how businesses can use social media. And then how my mo most recent book was The Disruption Mindset. Interesting. Cool. So take us back to where it all started, because I always believe there's, there's threads or there's skeletons that start us off in terms of our, our current work. So where did you start this work? Where did it happen? Well, I started this work coming out of Harvard Business School in 1993. And instead of going into consulting or investment banking, like most of my classmates, I decided to go and work in newspapers because I could see that the internet and the online world was coming. And when I graduated, the World Wide Web, the browser had just been invented yeah. that month. And so I ended up at the San Jose Mercury News in the middle of Silicon Valley and said, no, I, I want to be here at the front edge of this disruption that was going to happen. And I said that newspapers were going to be one of the first businesses to be disrupted. And so I had a front row seat to this new thing called the internet being born. And so that, that really kicked off my career in, in terms of being, being there, chasing disruption and, and helping organizations and leaders transform. I love that. We've got a client who they were in the audience. They're based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just down the road from Harvard. But they were in the audience when the internet was kicked off and one of the key things is said the biggest problem you're going to have is bandwidth yeah for the internet and somebody in this room is going to set up a company that's responsible for that so that's their whole story so it is amazing how the northeast of the u.s and that small pocket created so much disruption in the world in terms of what it did so but tell me about how san jose why was that what what was the connection for you well, first of all, I wanted to get out of winter, so I wanted to be in California. <laughs> I was sick of snow. Um, I grew up in Michigan, so I just went, yeah, I grew up in it, but I don't want to be in it anymore. Yeah. And, and also, it was Silicon Valley. It was where the technology was happening. And granted, a lot was happening in Boston, and I had those connections, but a lot of the work 
happening around the technology, the bandwidth, the uh, the internet infrastructure was being built in Silicon Valley. So mm-hmm. I wanted to be there. And, and sure enough, I was uh, hanging out with people like Jerry Yang when he was a graduate student still at Stanford. My friends were working at Mozilla developing the first browser. Uh, the Mercury News was one of the first newspapers online. So I was helping define what advertising would look like, figuring out how to sell advertising on banners and uh, just talking to businesses with hands-on experience actually creating these newspapers. And from there, moved back to Boston because I got married and was Mm. working for newspapers. And my job was to put 120 newspapers up online with a community newspaper company. So I I was writing HTML, writing scripts, uh, taking newspapers that were oftentimes arriving, being transported to us on floppy disks from Macintoshes. <laughs> so this was Love this it. was like the bare bones days. We didn't have even cascading style sheets. Everything was by hand. Hmm. So these were the mm-hmm. early, early days of the internet. We were just inventing it as we were going along. I don't want to leap about too much, but I'm, I'm fascinated about, you, you teach, you write about this, but how much has changed in terms of mindset people, the human beings behind this, when you were working with those people? What were they like compared to now? The difference is there's a much greater acceptance for this startup entrepreneurial, let's see what happens, throw it against the wall culture. Mm. Uh, back then, it was really an anomaly for people to go into startups, uh, for people to say, yeah, we could do something different. It, that, that was just not something you did. Uh, Clay Christensen wrote his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, in 1997. And, it, and so this was, I, I was working in a space about four or five years before that whole mindset came out that you could actually innovate and disrupt and transform mm-hmm. organizations and do it in a significant way. And, and even he said, you can't do this from inside the company. And what we've seen over the past 30 years is that you can do it inside companies. Yeah. And, and that's the big difference now is that companies and leaders believe that they can actually transform themselves. Mm. Going back to, so Clay hasn't written his book, which transformed a lot, but in terms of the the style of organizations, this is me being totally curious, um, you know, not being involved in there. What what was it like to, to live in this? Because startups are tough enough now when it's the mindset is accepted, but what was it like to work in those types of businesses then? One of the reasons I joined the community newspaper company is that it was owned by Fidelity Investments. Mm-hmm. So they had a VC arm. It could not a typical thing a mutual fund would own a group of newspapers. <laughs> and so they were very disruptive in the way they were thinking about things and, and investing in many different areas, including newspapers. And so they wanted to disrupt the way newspapers were run. They wanted to disrupt and, and see what could be possible. And so I fell into a space and with a really supportive leadership that was willing to try a lot of different things and had a lot of patience. I, I'll give you the, the difference. When I was at the Science and Mercury News, we had an innovation committee. You could hmm. not pick two words that would be much more of an oxymoron <laughs> than that. <laughs> yeah. And and so the requirement was that we had to have a six-month payback so wow. it wouldn't hit the bottom line. And, and, and that's not an investment for truly disruptive work. No. Whereas yeah. at the community newspaper company, it's like, you know, we, we're, we're tolerant to, you know, not make money for two years. The reality was we were profitable within a year because they were willing to let us experiment. And so we charged for online classifieds when no one else dared to. And we made a lot of money from it. 
because we could give away the print that was known for value to get them to pay for online to establish what that value looked like. So it was it was really different. We could try a lot of different things. I could hire some amazing people who, again, nobody had ever done this before. So mm -hmm. the skills that we were looking for were skills that were completely undefined. I suppose what I'm fascinated about, Charlene, is the the style of leadership then, because we're just discovering what it takes on the leadership side. In fact, experimental mindset is one of the latest things that's coming in, how we can experiment. But I'm looking back to those days, and obviously you can fail. You don't need to pay back within two years, but you were making money and breaking even uh, very early on. But what, were the what was the leadership like to create those conditions? The leadership gave me very, very broad parameters of what I needed to do, what I needed to, uh, the relationship I needed to have with the existing old guard of the newspaper. And we had to ex respect you know, editorial quality and independence. We had to you know, make sure that they were told what was going on. But otherwise, I said, well, can we cannibalize the business? They go, sure, go for it. Because if huh. you don't, somebody else will. And so it wasn't so much a competition, but there was this constant dialogue to say, we're going to be doing this, beware, it may impact your business. And there was an acceptance that this was absolutely going to be healthy for us. Mm -hmm. Because again, Monster was in the background. We had Craigslist in the background. These were all players on the sides that were starting to nibble at the revenues. And so they're like, look, we got to figure this out. Better us than them. And you talked about, you know, you, you can't do it from inside the business, but, you know, nowadays businesses are doing that. So there was a constant, we believe this is going to change. There were other competitors coming into the market. So it sounds like leadership was sort of telling me about you going through that because there's, there's an interesting move from one side of the country to the other for marriage. Yeah. Um, but tell me about what you were passionate about, what was motivating you through those journeys. Yeah. Well, just to give a little bit of context, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and there aren't a lot of people who look like me who are Asian um, and, and they're very, very few. So I, I grew up in an environment where I was an anomaly. I was a disruptive force just walking into the room. And so when you grow up like that, when you're the only, you get used to being a disruption. And so I, I got very used to just being disruptive, not fitting in, speaking my mind, standing out because that was the way it was going to be. And uh, when I was deciding to go into business and into leadership, uh, my father sat me aside. He goes, you know, all the leaders out there are tall, white, old men. You are none of those. You are short, young, Asian women. How are you going to succeed in this space? And, and I just had a tremendous confidence that not, not necessarily that I would be a huge success, that I, but I would make my way because I could type a hundred words a minute that's got to be a skill that I could use for something. You know, I get smart and I work hard, I'll, I'll be fine. Uh, but there were no role models. There were zero role models. And so having no role models has never daunted me. It's never been an issue. So moving into disruptive spaces, having no role models, I'm like, this is great. This is Greenfield. I can define everything that I'm doing. So that has given me, again, I've learned that skill and having that, that little bit of quiet confidence uh, from a very, very early age because I had to craft my, my own path. There was no path being made for me. You know, if you're looking back now and you're giving advice to other people who, you know, whether it's uh, race, skin color, neurodiversity is a big thing now and people are challenged by what they're, they're going through. 
what did you learn? Because you talk about learning and it's it seems very simple to say I learned it, did it? But the pain and the process was probably more complex than that. What did you learn that you could tell other people about through that? What I can say, and, and I have um, children who are neurodiverse too, so I can speak mm. from this as a parent too, that um, it's never about being perfect. It's about doing your best. And the hardest part is knowing what best means. So what is your best? Yeah. You can always do more, but that's not your best. So that was that was the most difficult thing to to figure out is how would you define success and your own definition of success? Nobody else's definition of success. Mm. Because if you'd end each day with a feeling that you have accomplished what you set out to do, that you have done your best, then it's a really, really good day. Okay. So I, I believe in being optimistic, but being realistic. Uh, so the realist optimists are the ones who rule the world because you believe that things can be better. And that's what leaders do. They create change to make the world around them better. Uh, and then you set about to say what can realistically be done. Perfectly imperfect. Something that I've looked at for myself in terms of that that mantra. But I, yeah, a realistic optimist, I think is, yeah, I love that. Love that combination. So tell us about, so that was the newspapers. And then what, where, where did you go after that? Well, I started having babies and managing uh. people was not my, my, my cup of tea for a while because I had babies at home and I was tired of dealing with babies at work. So I became an analyst at a research company called Forrester Research. So I joined in 1999, became the internet media marketing manager, um, researcher and set about to size the internet advertising market. And the dot-com boom was happening. So I drove, my, my forecast for internet advertising drove a lot of the investments around the dot-com boom. Uh, and then from there, went on to email and covering search, the rise of search, uh, mm. and then started covering social media in 2001 and started a blog in 2004. So uh, unlike most analysts, I, I would start a coverage area. And as it matured, I would hand it off to somebody else and start a new research area. And they're like, don't you want to keep milking that? I'm like, well, it's been milked. It's done. It's kind of the same thing. I, I don't want to necessarily be doing that over and over again. So I want to mm -hmm. look at something new. And when mm -hmm. I started uh, blogging and writing about social media, it was brand new. Nobody knew what was going on. It seemed like this weird faddish thing on the side. And what I really discovered is that this is going to change everything. It's going to change the way we communicate, the way we have relationships with each other, how companies communicate, the transparency that would be needed. And it felt like it's more than what could be written in a 20-page report. I just felt like it was a book inside of me to tell the stories of how the world would change, to describe what this world would look like, and to help leaders understand the seismic shift that was coming. And it, it was... It's hard to imagine now there was a time when we weren't transparent, we weren't human, we weren't sharing things in a more transparent way. Uh, and yeah, social media has a lot of things that is wrong with it, but it has ushered in a completely different way of us relating to each other. And you're an analyzing and you're commentating on it, but it, you must have had to immerse yourself in there to, to get experience in it. You know, I talk about practice leadership, but so you talk about, we're talking about areas you get in you've milked it you've done enough you move on so it must be a real skill to be able to immerse yourself be able to comment with expertise on it and then move on yeah yeah I, I, again forrester is a company that writes syndicated research so people can only get to it by paying huge amounts of money to get past a firewall to read the content so i show up and, I, and like 
I think I need to start a blog and it needs to be public and it needs to be free. They're like, this is a threat to our business. You can't do that. <laughs> and I talked them into it. And not only did I talk them into it, I also said, we need to allow for comments to be free and open. And so I was the first analyst to blog with open comments. Um, and, and people were like, I can't believe you're doing this. And I had to have certain agreements with them. Again, I wouldn't disclose anything that was proprietary. Wouldn't talk about data. It would just be my opinion. Uh, it would be under the Forrester brand. It would be owned by Forrester. It wouldn't be me owning, even though it was my personal blog. So there was all these things and we agreed to it, put it in writing so we were all understanding what was happening. And I started blogging. And so I could talk from experience. This is what it's like to build an audience, to create content, to have a relationship with people in a direct way. And it completely transformed the way we do work as analysts. And so that that informed me to then write a book a, a few years later about how do you actually do this? And and in fast forward now, I've, I've, I've always been immersing myself into these technologies. I'm not a tech person. I don't code in a, in a significant way. But I've recently picked out coding thanks to ChatGPT, have been writing applications, getting my hands dirty, writing autonomous agents and building my own chat bot. And I didn't even know how to turn on Python a few months ago. <laughs> so I didn't know how to <laughs> like, access it or even how to change directories inside a terminal window. So I, I do like to get my hands dirty and, and dive into this. Yeah. And it's almost like you're predicting the future because you got involved with email, social media. Now you're getting into chat, chatbot and, you know, open AI and all the other pieces in there. So how long, when do you know when it's done and you're on to the next thing? Because you're, what is you, what are you doing now and, and how you're exploring things? And maybe you get a sneak peek into what's coming around the corner. Sure. Yeah. I, I have always said that my greatest source of inspiration are the people I talk to and work with. My clients, the people I meet at conferences, I learn through their questions. I learn through their challenges. Um, as I, I'm, I'm writing a book now on chat GPT and generative AI and how companies can use it. And people are like, isn't it changing way too fast for you to write a book? Well, there are ways to write books that you can update them whenever you want. It's called print on demand. That didn't mm. exist a few years ago. And so the idea that I, I can use these technologies and dive into them very quickly and easily means that I can actually explain it to people too as well. It creates this credibility because when people ask me these questions, I'm like, well, that's a great question. I don't know what the answer is. Let me go think about it, do some research. I'll get back to you because we're all learning this together. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the amount of change that's happening. We, we thought that digital and social were challenges to us as leaders. I think this new wave of generative AI is going to bring a whole new level that's going to challenge our leadership and our ability to comprehend the huge amount of change that has to happen in our organizations. And the word I've just written down here is as going through that is vulnerability because there's one vulnerability about standing up in front of an audience questions that you don't know the answers to and facilitating those and say look i'm going to explore and understand and then there's a vulnerability that you're talking about now which i think a lot of leaders are feeling now which is how do i deal with this and I, it might be a sneak peek of the book but what are you thinking in there? What's your, your message or even a hypothesis if it's at, at the moment? Oh, yeah. I, I've been working with quite a few leaders on this right now. But I've taken on some coaching and, and it's it's interesting. We get we become leaders. We get promoted and, and moved into these positions because we know things. We know how to 
to run things. We have the answers to be able to lead other people. But things are way too complex now. Things are changing so quickly. We can't even begin to have an idea what the answers are. And so we have to shift our leadership from knowing and being confident about our answers to being able to ask really good questions, to be able to align ourselves and our teams and our organizations to focus on the problem that we're going to solve together. It is a problem definition. It's about asking the smart questions. And so I I like to say, I don't, I can't predict the future, but I can ask some really, really good questions and encourage other leaders to ask really good questions that'll help us all each see our future. And in some ways, people could say asking the right questions is nothing new, but at the speed of of asking the right questions and getting an immediate answer and generating new thinking, if things are changing this fast, and we're moving, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from Jimi Hendrix, knowledge speaks, wisdom listens. There's a piece about asking the right question, then there's listening, but then you've got to craft a strategy. I'm fascinated to think about how do you do strategy in such a fast moving? Writing a book is, you know, print on demand, but how do you do a strategy in this fast moving? Well, I, I think the days of doing strategic planning on an annual basis is completely out of date. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best companies are now doing agile strategic planning. It is uh, 18th months in, in the future, budget, strategy, everything, with again, a long-term vision. And every quarter you're updating that strategy. And you're extending it another quarter. And for some people, that seems insane. Like you have to do the entire process over and over again. No, but it's not. You're you're understanding what are the biggest areas of sensitivity that makes your strategy want to go in one direction or the other because you're making assumptions. So which assumptions are most important to driving the outcomes you want? What is actually happening in the execution of that? And you're constantly aligning and getting that information throughout the quarter and you have this one checkpoint at the end of the quarter to say, are we on plan? Are we not on plan? Everyone come to the table. We're shifting the strategy in this direction, aligning it and extending it now another quarter. The beauty of the 18 month strategy, or as I call it, the six quarter walk is that everyone's going on the same walk. Everyone knows where we're supposed to be at the end of every single quarter. There's complete transparency about that. And if you look at most strategies and most budgets, they're really detailed for the first quarter and it completely tails off by the fourth quarter. And there is no fifth or sixth quarter. That's not yeah. a strategy. That's just a budget. So I think the way that we do strategies, and we have to be really honest with ourselves, is it a strategy or is it a budget? Hmm. And we manage ourselves to a budget rather than having a strategy that our budget supports. Interesting. Can I pause on that and just go into a bit more depth? So you talked about, firstly, I love the six-quarter walk because I always think the walking rather than running, it's a, a journey, but it's it's about the speed of the, that you're going. But the budget versus the strategy, talk to me about that because there's a number of people who maybe are listening or lower in an organization, firstly, don't get involved in the strategic, yeah, um, but are the almost the receivers of the budget and therefore... How would you get an organization, say a larger one, to operate in that at the moment? be fascinated to see what your thoughts well, are. Well, I, I like to say that there are three questions that every single one of your employees and a company should be able to answer. And if you're lower in the organization and you cannot answer these questions, then your leaders owe it to you 
to be able to support you in answering these three questions. So the first one is, who is our customer of the future? Who are we trying to serve? How is the world evolving? How is the market evolving? What are the needs of those customers? Mm. And second question is, what's our strategy to be able to meet those needs? What are we doing today to not just serve our current customers, but to also prepare to serve those future customers? And the third question is, what is my role, my impact on making that strategy to serve our future customers a success? And as an employee, I should be able to answer all of those. And it's not rocket science. You know, we can have these large you know, decks of presentations about what the strategy is and beautiful placemats and everything. But if you can't explain it and, and answer those three questions for every single employee, then the strategy is worthless. Mm. What are we doing? Why are we here? Am I doing a job? Am I supporting a strategy? Two very different approaches. And so the budget is all in support of that strategy to make that a reality. And then coming to the persona, because I'm from the design thinking, the persona, having a clear persona, and you've asked that question, who is the customer of our future? If so much is changing, a lot of that persona work needs to change with it as we we, we go. So, um, yeah, it's that prediction piece. And it goes back to your analyst and your insights piece. But if things are changing that quickly, it's very difficult to predict the the personas. It is the number one reason why leaders don't like to talk about the future. <laughs> Yeah. Because we want to be right. Yeah. We want to be able to predict the future. Yeah. And we, we're really hesitant to do it. And, and I can tell you, I'm terrible at predicting the future. <laughs> right. It, and But yet I try to do it. Because mm-hmm. if you don't do it, then what are you doing? Mm-hmm. So you make a projection. You make your best bet. And every quarter, every day, you're getting more information to help you understand Am I right in that guess or do I need to shift it a little bit? Or it's just completely wrong and we need to go back to square one and start over again. But to not step into that future, to try to see what that future looks like, it's a mistake. Just because you can't see it's not clear doesn't mean you shouldn't begin on the journey. Just moving forward one step further, you'll be a lot closer to figuring out what that future looks like. But you have to begin taking that first step. I love that answer. Because it goes into, we're going to put, whether it's an MVP or whatever else, we're going to put that out in the, 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 the ether, see whether it is successful or not. And again, I think some of the larger businesses who are listening might go, that's easy for you to say, but for a large business, it's difficult. But actually, it's, it's how, how you operate. It's how you connect with your customers. still can be done at that level. You know, I hear this from big businesses. Like, you know, we, we, we're we not a startup. We don't have the advantage of being a startup. I'm like, wait a minute. You have every advantage in the world. You have existing customers. You have customers on the size who could be your potential future customers. You have brand. You have people. You have cash. You have experience. You, you have so much going for you. The only advantage a startup has is that they have no customers. So they have to go look for the future customers. So big companies, incumbent companies have to literally put on disruption sunglasses <laughs> so that they're not blinded by their beautiful, profitable, wonderful customers. <laughs> because you, they're so beautiful. Like, I just want to stay here. It's nice and comfortable. I yeah. just want to serve them. Why should I go off in this scary future where I don't know things are going to happen? And I may, oh my goodness, fail. <laughs> You know, I made a mistake. So yeah. I, I try to do something called the MVD, as in data, minimally viable data, before you even get to the product. What's 
the minimum amount of data I need to make the next decision, not the perfect amount of data, not so I'm 100% sure, but just enough to know to choose between option A and option B. What's the minimum amount of information I need? Gather that and then make that decision. And then find the next decision you have to make. Gather the minimum amount of data for that. And you'll be in a different place. And then you can see, well, was that right? Was it wrong? I can go back. And that's playing into the data analytics, isn't it? Because, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of leaders are having to relearn how they think about data, how they use data. Have almost a drop-down eyesight for themselves in terms of seeing that. And where's your place on the uh, leading indicators versus uh, lagging indicators? Because a lot of businesses are about last quarter review and then leading indicators, particularly with the AI and the move in there. It's what leading indicators should we be looking at? What are you talking to people? About? Yeah, I was talking to a CEO and I asked him, what's in the upper left-hand corner of your dashboard? Does it, is it a lagging indicator or is it a leading indicator about who your new customer is going to be? And he, he's kind of like just really embarrassed. He goes, it's, it's all about inventory terms. I'm like, what, yeah. how does that help you? <laughs> he's like, I got to change that. And, and I share this, this I, I don't have a screenshot of it, but I had a chance mm -hmm. to look at Mark Zuckerberg's uh, dashboard. And it was, again, everybody in, at Facebook could see can see his dashboard so they can see what's important to him. And the very first column was all about mobile. This is again, quite a few years ago. It was all about mobile customers and their mobile usage. He really wanted to understand, again, they had not launched anything in mobile. They barely had a web mobile uh, presence, but it was all he was focused on. It wasn't about what was happening, you know, already on, on, on their proprietary app. It was really what was happening on mobile that mm. was keeping his focus. And that was a message to everyone else. This is what's really important this new audience, what their behaviors are, what are they doing across different platforms? And so what you measure is, you know, what matters and what you manage. So leading indicators, as well as lagging indicators, some lagging indicators, but leading indicators help you again see the future. What I like is it's linking back into your customers of the future, because there's a piece about the new customers, yeah, what we're looking at and how they're, they're measuring success in there. Amazing. MVD, new, I've never heard that before. I love it in terms of the amount of data. So coming back almost full circle to, to you and you've been an analyst, you've started blogging, you've been pushing the boundaries of social media, you're now into chat GPT and looking at AI. Yeah, where next for you? Because you've changed your career slightly. Yeah, it's a different Right, um, along the way I started the business uh, mm -hmm. Altimeter Group and sold it. So very happy to be an entrepreneur and, and very happy to be an ex-entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, and then was in corporate life for about six, seven years and recently just left it. Now independent again. And it feels great. Again, I have the flexibility to cover and write about what I want. I'm doing a lot of speaking, a lot of advisory work, workshops, working with executives, which is exactly the kind of work I love doing. Um, taking on coaching. So I have that deep relationship building. Um, and, and love seeing leaders come into their own and, and become these transformational leaders. Uh, they're already excellent leaders, but they want to figure out how do I transform my organization, also myself. So that's that's what I, I really focus on. Mm. And and so just just again writing, um, mm -hmm. live streaming, doing podcasts. So all those fun things that uh, you get to do when you're, when you're trying to pull together these ideas. 
and 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 really delve into thought leadership. I have a knack for it, and I love it, and I love seeing that aha moment in people's faces. And you have a a way of just making it sound so simple. And as a person who struggles in there, it's it must be a real skill to be able to help others to see their way through this as well. So yeah, yeah, powerful. I do feel like it's my superpower to simplify the complex, and uh, then to give people the confidence that they can absolutely tackle this. And I I do believe this. Again, it's that realist optimist in me that believes, you know, I I see people in very advanced positions in age experience come into this space. And this is not dependent on age because this is all about your outlook to say, how do I think about the world? How do I think about people and relationships? How do I think about that relationship with others and also with myself? And if you're on that growth journey, then you can do this. I love that. If you had to point people in a direction, this is one of the questions I keep getting asked and I ask myself. At the moment with all this stuff coming at us, where's your top three things that you go to for yourself to source your information? Who are you listening to? Yeah. Um, I love this one podcast by Paul Royster called the Marketing AI Podcast. He just puts it on once a week and it's just a great synopsis, very business oriented. So the Marketing AI Podcast. Um, I'm in the AI Exchange, which is a a paid subscription email and Slack community. So just a lot of great information. And then I'm in a couple of different groups. One that's local to New York and San Francisco is called CerebralValley.ai. They list a whole bunch of events and I just go to as many events as I can stand. Uh, I was just at a hackathon yesterday, judging that uh, for generative AI in the future of work. And so it, you just come across, you know, lots of different people all trying to figure this out, realizing that no one knows what's going on. And so that just kind of keeps me energized to go, okay, the work that I'm doing is meaningful because I talk to people, I'm learning so much, asking lots of questions. They're asking me questions, we're having a dialogue and the amount of learning that can happen at these events online and and in person is just tremendous. I think as a core leadership skill for me is the ability to have the conversations without knowing or discussing. And it also encourages that your team below you to um, start to think about doing the same. So I love it. Charlene, it's been brilliant to have you on. If you people want to find out more about you, find out uh, about your books um, and your podcast, where would they go to? Uh, you can start with my website, charlinglee.com. And all of my current content is posted on LinkedIn. So you can follow me on LinkedIn. My live streams, my content, everything shows up in there. So that's an easy way to get the freshest content. Brilliant. So we're going to finish with the three questions we always finish with. I'm fascinated to pick. See, if you had to pick a small moment, the first one, a small moment in your career that shaped your leadership, what would it be? I was hiring somebody and it was, it was a former client of mine, actually. And, and he really wanted to come on board. And he said, you know, my strengths are different from yours. I'm a deliberator. You're an activator. And I need you to understand that I'm not going to come up with the answer right away, but I will give you a really thoughtful answer, but I may need a few hours or a day or two to think about it. Can you work with my strengths? And that was my first introduction to strengths and the strengths-based competencies and training. And that has influenced everything that I look at from a perspective. 
instead of thinking about people as, oh, they're not good at this or they're really good at that, how how are they their talents turned into strengths and to really foster that in people, to really look at everyone's strengths. Every single person has a strength. So when I put teams together, I'm asking them and, and figuring out what are the strengths we need for this particular project? What are the strengths that are going to bring out people? What kind of development do they need and want to bring those talents and develop them into strengths? So that was a small moment that just was transformational in the way I think about the world and how I, mm-hmm. how I lead. I love that because you also mentioned superpowers before, and I think a lot of people don't understand their superpowers. They've got this people around, they never analyze what's, what impact they have in the world. And it's when you ask them the, the, the question about what their strengths are sometimes or the superpower, I always find giving them time to reflect and getting a, a deeper answer than the first one is, is normally a good process. I love that. Second one then, if you, um, if you look at leadership nowadays, what's the one thing you would disrupt about leaders? I would disrupt their relationship with failure, mm. how we think about failure, uh, because it is the shame around it, the anxiety around it that holds us back from being the leaders that we could potentially be. I, I, I see it left and right. I see it in myself. It's constantly coming up. The, and and it's, it's this deep, deep shame that we carry around this. I, I remember a time when I was failing miserably. I was not, I, I had not paid attention to the cash flow and realized that I was going to have to do a layoff. And I was so deeply shameful of that. If I had at that moment been able to deal with my shame, reached out to my friends and colleagues in my network, it would have been a much better process for myself and for my organization. And yet I couldn't because of that shame. So that was a huge learning moment for me. And so I really encourage people to have a really good, solid relationship with failure. A relationship with failure. How do you, because it's there and it's fraught with (laughs) shame and anxiety. How do we think about our relationship with failure? How do we deal with it every day? How do we talk about it, live with it? And I love the word you use there, shame, not, but it's, that's what it is. I mean, I'm going through something similar with my business and it's amazing that you have to force yourself to reach out to somebody to talk about it, but it's, you're dealing much more with the shame and the emotions rather than actually the pragma, pragmatic reality about what you need to do. Love that. If you had to have one leadership habit that's non-negotiable for you, what would it be? Getting feedback, creating a culture of feedback. I, I find that so many organizations suffer because people are like, if they only knew, if I could only say, if I had permission, if I, you know, if we were just not providing and communicating and giving and, and having a good practice around feedback. Hmm. And so one of the things I did early on with my business was to establish how do we actually give feedback? We did training around giving feedback. Like this is how you do it. We, we, we follow the situation, behavior and impact. Here's the situation. This is the behavior I observed. And this is the impact I saw that I felt or I saw in other people. And it could be positive. Like you did this at this meeting and the impact was fantastic. This is great. You should know about that. That's extremely valuable because they'll continue to do that. And then other times it's like, hey, is this a good time to get feedback? There was a situation, this behavior happened and the impact was not great. And I want to make sure you know about that. And it's a gift. So we can create culture of feedback and see feedback as a gift to give and especially to receive. 
it is such a beautiful thing. And it, you know, it's being given to you in a space of trust, of development, compassion, of somebody aligned with you in terms of the accomplishments that and what your definition of success looks like, then it's beautiful and wonderful. And you learn and you thrive and you grow. Such a common theme through your story so far, which I love, which is one is the humility to go out and explore and be vulnerable. Second is that loop about learning. And it even goes to the feedback piece. Um, but what I'm struck by is just this confidence to be in the ambiguous and the unknown and sit in it, wallow in it. It's, uh, it's lovely. It's, it's nice to meet somebody. I do a lot of meditation, the Stoics, but it's nice to somebody who actually lives and breathes that and is, is comfortable in that space. So yeah. It's yeah. I talk about being in the liminal space, mm. which is the Greek word for threshold. You're going mm. from one place where it's known to another place that's unknown. And in that place where you leave what's known and you haven't yet arrived, it's this messy middle, the liminal space. And it can be kind of scary. But if you have some pillars, you have some foundational values, foundational relationships, there's usually a guide or a sage. Think Obi-Wan Kenobi from Star hmm. Wars, for example, yep. who may be present or maybe, you know, sitting in the cloud someplace. Um, but But that's where... All these practices of mindfulness, for example, are incredibly helpful because mm. it gives you perspective. And you mentioned um, the, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. I'm, I'm actually working on another book, my long-term project about wisdom mm. and how do we acquire it and how do we gain it sooner and faster in our lives and deepen it so that we stay in wisdom because we can be wise, but fall out of wisdom and make foolish decisions. So how do we stay in wisdom, understand our perspective where we are, and then be able to make the best decisions we can. And if we can just increase the level of decisions that we make, just make them a little better each time and have organizations of wise people making wise decisions, we'll be in such a better place. I love that. Love that concept of staying in wisdom. It's how often we talk about human behavior and the ability to stay in a good mode, yeah, or a better mode is so difficult because we fall out of it. So yeah, love that. Charlene, it's been an absolute joy to have you on the podcast. Thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Amazing podcast, lovely person, lovely human being, some great stories, um, some great exploration around her thinking. I, I love when people can sit in a space, talk about it, um, simplify the complex, get you to understand it as well. But I did love the, particularly around the three questions for anybody in your business, which is who is your customer of the future? What strategy we need, do we need to have in place uh, to fulfill that need of the future customer? And then what is my impact? What is my role? Three questions to be thinking about. But I've got to finish with the, um, the comment about the liminal space. Um, and it's, it's a, an ability to be in that uh, space between known and unknown and encourage yourself. And it's linked to the thoughts she had around leadership, failure, and then the shame of failure and how we need to 
redefine our relationship with with failure and therefore uh, remove the shame of that so again fascinating for me to to talk to her um sure you enjoyed it but i look forward to welcoming you on another episode of the leadership tales podcast very shortly <laughs>